I'm going to encourage you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter. That is where we're going to be studying this morning. And so we began the study in 1 Peter last week, and we realized that Peter writes this letter to encourage the churches, but he also gives them a vision for what the church is supposed to be. And what was the vision he gave for the church in the first couple verses? That the church was to be two E words. Elect exiles, right? That's how Peter starts the very foundation of this book is beginning by defining the vision of who the people of God are supposed to be. And we, we talked about that enough last week, so we're going to jump into this next section of First Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 12 of chapter 1. And what Peter's going to do here is he's going to be able to lay down this vision for the church of being a church of hope, being a church of hope. And so today we're going to be examining this passage together. We're going to be talking about the hope that knowing Jesus gives us, the hope we get from the past, the hope we have for the future, and even how the hope of Jesus impacts our present here and now. And as we talk about this, this theme and concept of hope, one thing I, I hope we realize is how absolutely unique this is to the Christian worldview. Um, it, it was fascinating for, for me. Uh, Rebecca and I and Hayden Nelson, our summer intern, a few weeks ago we did a, a psychological first aid course. Um, and you know what first aid is, right? So this is dealing with psychological first aid, people having sort of traumatic experiences, dealing with the psychological nature. And one of the things we talked about was, was what's called Hobfell. Hobfell was the main research, but, researcher, but Hobfell talks about five major things that need to be done during psychological first aid. And the first one he talked about was, well, you, you have to create a, a concept of safety. So there needs to be safety there. There needs to be calmness. If you as a psychological first aider come into a chaotic situation and you're chaotic, it's just going to create more issues, right? So there has to be safety. There has to be calm. There has to be connectedness. And then there has to be self-efficacy, which means the person is able to make decisions for themselves. And then the fifth thing we talked about was that there has to be a sense of hope. Now, what I find absolutely fascinating is in our discussion with, with all the other people doing the training, the first four categories, we had tons of discussion around how to create a safe environment, how do we be calm in the midst of chaos, how do we, how do we empower people to make decisions after traumatic events, but we got to the last subject, the subject of hope, and the conversation wasn't even engaged by the teachers. It was sort of this throw-off, oh yeah, and tell people that there's something to hope for. And I began to think, why didn't we have a conversation about that? And then I began to remind myself, wait a second, unless you have a Christian worldview, is there any hope beyond trauma? No, none. And so as we approach the conversation today about hope, I want to remind ourselves, and I'm getting emotional again because I'm even thinking of Matt's story right now and the theme of hope. 
But outside the Christian worldview, we have to come to reminding ourselves of how gifted we are to know God. And, and after, uh, after our time together in this first aid course, they let us all take these little posters. And there's, there are all these little lame posters that people put up. But it was fascinating to me. I came across this quote. And it's a guy named by Viktor Frankl. Who's ever heard of Viktor Frankl before? Yeah, not extremely well-known, but he's actually a very important person to read. And uh, I, I know his name from a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And as soon as I saw his name, I said, this was the poster that I'm going to grab. And the, the fascinating quote he says here is he said, When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Isn't that fascinating? When we can no longer change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Now, Victor wasn't a Christian. Um, He was actually his own story. He was was a, a Jewish Austrian that spend uh, many, many times and years in the prisons of Auschwitz, Nazi concentration camps. And his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, is written about his experiences there, and he writes actually quite a bit on the theme of hope. And, And some of the things he begins to write on and observe during that time in Auschwitz was He said that, I realized that hope had this absolutely profound change on how people approach life and suffering. And so he he begins to talk about how some of the prisoners in Auschwitz, well, what they did in the midst of persecution and suffering is they responded to their hopeless situation by treating others the same way that they were treated. So just as they were beaten and abused, they would beat and abuse others. Just as violence was done to them, they would perform violence on others. And he said all they were trying to do was to grasp on any sense of control and power that they could. And then he says there was this other group that when they responded to a hopeless situation, they responded just by giving up. And he says it would come random in their lives. There, there wasn't any major events, but he says sooner or later you would just saw people that didn't even bother to wake up anymore. They didn't bother to get dressed. They didn't bother to eat anymore. They just became absolutely hopeless and they died in that state. They just basically laid and were done with life. And then he said many afterwards... He said, many held on to the hope that one day, if they ever escaped or got out of the Auschwitz prison, that one day all their family and friends and finances would be restored to them and they could recreate their life. And then he said, but what happened even after they were out of Auschwitz is many simply didn't return to any of that. They had nothing to go back to. Their family, their friends were gone. Their finances were gone. They had no homes to return to. And he said, when he saw those people, they just ultimately went into this deep depression. And many even committed suicide, he talked about. But here's where he says, the people that were able to maintain hope in the midst of Auschwitz were these people. 
He says, the people that had a hope that was beyond this world. Uh, The people that had a hope that was beyond any circumstances they would ever go through. Uh, A people that had a hope outside of themselves. These were people that actually lived to the fullest and were able to overcome the hopelessness of their situation. And he says, these were the people that realized there was something outside of the grasp of death and destruction. And these were the people that had a faith in God. And so Frankel says that life in this concentration camp experience, what it really does is it really tears open your soul. It tears open your meaning. It tears open your purpose and value in life. And all those things that become threatened are actually exposed to what you truly believe about them. And he says it's actually the, the, in the midst of suffering, it's in the midst of tragedy that our hope is exposed. And, and as we come to 1 Peter today, 1 Peter is, is going to say a very similar thing. He's saying that it's actually in the midst of our trials in our grief, in our testing, in all the hardship and pain in life, that the, what we truly long for and hope for and believe is actually exposed in our life. Now, what happens in, in our life is practically, for many of us, our hope is simply that our circumstances will change. But I bring this back to Victor. Um, when we have our hope that our circumstances will change, does that ever happen? No, things often just get worse in life, don't they? Things often get more traumatized. Things often get more difficult. Things often fall apart even further. And so if our hope is that our circumstances will change, all that's going to happen for us is we move from one difficult circumstance to another. And there's this circular circular hopelessness that comes from that. And so Peter is going to give us some very good news this morning. Peter is going to give us this hope that is beyond any circumstance that we could experience in this life. And so let's come to the text together this morning. And so let's read the first couple verses and get a glimpse of what Peter is saying. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great what? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Peter, what he's doing here is he's giving this historical reality for us to frame our minds around. And what he's telling us is there there is a hope that comes to all believers in Christ because of what has happened in history, because of what God has done. And, And what Peter begins to describe is really this gospel story that according to God's great mercy, what does mercy mean? It means that even when we didn't deserve anything from God, he still acted in love. He still acted in generosity. He still acted in forgiveness. And in this attribute and action of God towards us in this way, therefore he has caused us to be 
born again. Now, what is this language of being born again? It's this language of, well, first of all, we are dead to something. We're not alive to something. And this goes back to the entire narrative of Scripture that all humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. All humanity deals with sin in their life. All of us are, are in a sense, dead in our sin. And so the only hope we have from, from being dead is to be made alive. And, and Peter uses this imagery of we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection. And so what Peter is saying to us is that God has given us a new night life, a, a life that is reborn, a, a life that has finally come alive. Scripture talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is how Paul talks about, but what is he has done? He has raised us to newness of life. And this is really what we celebrated a couple weeks ago with, with baptism too, with, with Michael and Clayton, and we're going to be celebrating with Donna soon too, right? This, this reality that we are dead in our sins. We, we can do nothing to overcome that death, and yet simply by the mercy of God, He has caused us to be born again, giving us a new hope, a new life. Now, this is a beautiful gift because think about it from this perspective. Can you decide whether or not you're born? Did any of us decide to be born? <laughs> no, it, it's not even a concept that we think of because it, it was simply by the will of our parents and the will of God that we even come into existence. And the same beautiful truth is in Scripture, that just as we are dead, not alive to sin, we have no hope on our own power and our own strength to find abundance and life. And yet God has gifted it to us, so we've been born again into this living hope. And so this, this to me is, is crucial for this perspective, because this is how I've seen some people approach Christianity, where, where Christianity can almost become this thought, well, I'm going to follow Jesus, and he's sort of going to be this perspective of a self-help program, where... I'm going to make a new start in life. I'm going to start over, and this is going to be my new life. Where, where Peter says it's not just a sense of making a new start in life. Peter says this is a new life to start with. That's what knowing Jesus and, and being united with Jesus is. It's an entirely new life to start with. And so the gospel is this beautiful gift of God's life for us because of his mercy, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so e even this concept of resurrection becomes quite powerful. Let's wrestle with that a little bit more. This is what Peter says. He says, this is what the resurrection brings. It brings an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by whose power? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So Peter begins to explain that the hope that we have starts with this past reality of what God has done through Jesus, through the resurrection, um, through bringing us from dead in our sins to alive in Christ. This is the past reality of what God has done. And he says this hope now transforms the entire way that you view the future. And the way you view the future is now through an entirely new lens because the future that is held on for you by God's power is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. In other words, what Peter is saying, no matter what circumstances you are going through in life, no matter what painful hardship or tragedy or trauma you go through, there's a perspective that you always need to have before you. That because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is something glorious, there is something wonderful, there is something beyond the scope of this world just waiting for us. A hope that death and disease, that nothing can touch because it's in the power of God being guarded by Him. And Peter says there's this hope for the future because of what God has done in the past and resurrection. Now, let's just think about this for a second. Let's just pause and get more of our minds in Peter's head. What happened to Peter during the trials and crucifixion and burial of Jesus? How did Peter respond to all of that in the life of Jesus? What do we see Peter doing yeah, denying Jesus. Jesus is, or Peter is literally hiding out, trying to protect himself and say, I don't know who Jesus was. He denies knowing him three times. What else do we see Peter doing that time? Any other memories of what Peter was doing? Yeah, afterwards he repented. So what, what changes that? Uh, what, what changes this? And so Peter, in his mind, he sees Jesus going to crucifixion. And who did Peter believe Jesus to be? The, the Messiah, the Son of God, right? And as Jesus is going to crucifixion, all of that is falling apart in Peter's heads. He, he's saying, wait a second, everything I believed about Jesus I don't think to be true anymore. I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the Son of God. But now he's on his way to crucifixion this makes no sense. And so Peter, in this testing and trial and grief that he's going through, he actually walks away and distances himself from God and even denies knowing Jesus. And yet, what was it that changed everything for Peter? The resurrection, right? It was the resurrection. I mean... Resurrection Sunday, Peter goes to the tomb and it's empty. And, and as soon as Jesus appears to Peter, all his sadness and sorrow turns to joy. All his despair and defeat turns to this statement of victory. All, all of the things that he thought he knew about Jesus has come into its fullness. And so Peter begins to realize that because of the resurrection, everything changed. And Peter then bases his entire life around the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. 
See, th- this is this massive transformation that comes into the life of Peter. He-, he goes from someone who thinks that Jesus is a failure to denying him to being running away and, and being a coward in the midst. And-, and now he's come to the point where he's writing to the church saying that whatever you go through in life, the greatest trials that you will ever experience, the greatest hardship and failures, you can meet those things with joy. Uh, This radical transformation happens in the life of Peter, and the only answer is because of the hope of the resurrection. And and so I bring that up to give us this sense of hope right now. Because even in the midst of difficult times, and I know that many of you are going through very difficult times right now, periods of grief, periods of hardship, periods of loss, periods of sorrow, all these things that are weighing heavily on you, all these things that feel like a burden in this life. But here's the reality. Yes, we go through these things, and Peter's going to talk about why we go through these things next. But first of all, he says, but just remember for a second, There is something beyond all this. There is something beyond everything that you are going through in this life. And we have an inheritance that cannot perish, that cannot be corrupted, that cannot fade away, guarded by God, which means that everything that we are going through, church, all the hardships and the trials, at the end of the day, we're still all moving in the exact same direction. And that direction is where? That direction is glory, amen? That direction is a new heavens and a new earth where all things will be made right and all things will be restored and everything will return to the way it should be. And so that's the direction of future hope that we all live in light of. And there's a day where where that experience of glory, when we finally get to be in the fullness of the presence of God and we finally get to experience creation and relationships the way that we were supposed to, when all that comes into reality, all the dark days and all the hardship and trials that we went through in this life are going to seem like nothing. That's our hope. That's the beauty. Praise God for that. Amen. Now, here's what Peter goes on to then. He says, This hope that we have from the past reality of what God has done through Jesus Christ and his resurrection, which then changes our complete reference and concept of what the future holds for us, he says what that does is actually drastically change the way we see the present here and now. And he says this, He says, in this you do what? You rejoice. In this you rejoice. We rejoice that God is merciful. We rejoice that God has brought us into a living hope, that we have been born again. We rejoice that we have inheritance. We we rejoice in God's salvation. All this we rejoice and we celebrate who God is. Then he says, in this you rejoice. Keep your perspective on these things. Then he says, though now, for a little while, does life seem long at times? (laughs) Life seems long at times, especially through hard season. Life seems long, but here's, here's what he says. This is just a little time, a little while. 
And he says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Who's been grieved by various trials in life? Right? We've, we've, we've been grieved by various trials. And then Peter says, you know why you go through all these trials? He says, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's good news, amen, church? And so Peter frames this, and so what are some key words here of what we're going to experience in this life? What is Peter saying? What are we going to experience in this life from this text? We're going to experience trials. We're going to experience testing. We talked a lot about that in James, right? We're going to experience grief, right? Those are the three major ones. And Paul says, or Peter says, you're going to walk through this life and you're going to be grieving. You're going to walk through all these trials. You're going to walk through all this testing. You're going to go through all these difficult things in life. Now, who likes to hear that? <laughs> who woke up this morning and, and was praying to God, God, I just need more trials and grief and testing in my life? And none of us pray that prayer. None of us want to pray that prayer. Thankfully, we have a gracious God who still brings us through those things, but we don't like any of that. We like a life of ease and comfort. We like when our values and our character never gets challenged. We like to live in the status quo many times, but here's what is wild. Peter says we can actually rejoice not in who God is, but also that we rejoice in what God does for us. And he says this more in verse 8, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Well, why would we be experiencing joy in the midst of grief and trials and testing? Why is joy thrown into this conversation? Why is there so much rejoicing going on, Peter? This sounds horrible. But, but what he's doing is he's, he's giving us a context. And this is the illustration that he gives us to understand. He says, it, it's like gold. He says, you, when you take gold and you heat it up, what's the purpose of heating up and burning off gold? What are you trying to do? You're trying to purify. You're trying to burn off all the excess waste. You're, you're trying to burn off all the imperfections and purities. There's this purpose behind the burning of gold. And, and it's the same way I saw a picture, I think it was a video, where I saw someone who just grabbed a bunch of stones and rocks off the beach, and they put it in like, uh, uh, what was it again? Like almost like a concrete shaker, and they did it for like a year or something like that. And after a year of just being shaken and beaten around, these ugly, normal gray stones turned into like these beautiful, multicolored gems. Like it was just wild to see. 
And, and it's sort of the same concept that Peter's using with gold is that when we go through this testing and trials and hardship in life and life just throws this around and we're in chaos, what that's doing is transforming us and changing us and making us into the people that God desires us to be. And so God brings us through these experiences and trials because he wants to transform us into something that we could never imagine of ourselves. He wants to change our character. He, he wants to change our perspective on life. He, he wants to, to make us into the image of himself. And that takes hardship and trials and testing. See, I, I think a, a good question that, that I find is actually a powerful question of self-examination. I found it to be a very powerful question for myself as, as well. It's just the basic question, would God and others want to spend eternity with me? Isn't that a sort of a vulnerable question, isn't it? Would God and others want to spend eternity with me? And just contemplate that for a second. And say, oh wait, well, would God and others really enjoy all my criticism for eternity? Probably not. Would God and others really enjoy the, the, some of the harsh things I can say at times? No. Would God and, and others enjoy if I'm acting in, in a judgmental attitude or if I'm gossiping or if I'm slandering or if I'm holding grudges or if I'm practicing unforgiveness? Whatever it may be, would God and others truly enjoy that for eternity? And that's a very self-exposing question, isn't it? But I think it's a very crucial question for this text because what we need to realize is that these moments of trials and testing are actually the grace of God in our life because God is actually exposing certain things in our life. And what we need to constantly be reminding ourselves, and this is what Peter does by pointing us to the future hope, is reminding ourselves that here and now, the experiences we have in this world is God preparing us for eternity with him. Does that make sense? That what we're going through here and now is that God is preparing us for eternity. This is not the end game. This is God's testing trials, preparing us, forming us, transforming us so that we can be with Him for eternity and enjoy it. <laughs> now, this is, I, I remember day camp, one of the questions that the kids asked was a question, well, if God loves us, why doesn't He all just take us to heaven now, right? Who has ever thought of that question? Who's longed for that question? I mean, we all should long for that question. God, why can't I just be in the new heavens and the new earth and in your presence now? Well, why do we have to wait? Well, Scripture tells us time and time again that part of the waiting process, part of the experience of this world is to go through these trials and testings to prove our faith genuine to be transformed into the image of God, not by our own power, but the, God, the power of God at work within us. This is, this is what's being accomplished. And, and I mean, verse 7 makes this very clear. 
He says, you go through various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith. And then he says, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him because of what history has told us. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And he, here's the key verse, verse 9. It says, then we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. The outcome of our faith is being made into the image of God. So often when we think of the word salvation, all we're thinking of is just, oh, I'm gone to heaven one day. No, it's this Greek word sozo, which means the, the saving value, this transforming nature that arises in our life, that the salvation of our souls is God transforming us and making us into who you're created to be. That, that is what God is doing in the present for us this week. This is the hope that our faith gives us. So I don't know what you're going through this week. I don't know everything that you've went through this past year or these past months or whatever trauma you've been through, whatever testing and trials and grief you've gone through. But what Peter does for a church that's experiencing hardship is he reminds us of the hope that is set before us that actually transforms us in the here and now. And here's the beauty of, of this transforming evidence of, of God. Verse 7 again, I'm going to go back there for a sec. What's the result of our faith being proved genuine? It says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's another way of saying that? It's saying when, when we are transformed in the image of God and we experience transformation in our life, God is doing all of this so it actually becomes this empirical evidence that God has the power to radically transform a life. Amen? That God has the power to radically transform a life to take something that is dead and make it alive. And, and then our lives then take on this entire new meaning in light of this text because not is it just us praising God, saying, God, thank you for transforming me. Thank you for removing those character defects. Thank you for helping me overcome addiction. Thank you for removing that sense of pride. Thank you for humbling me. Thank you for giving me a, a spirit of gratitude. It's all those things, but at the same time, it becomes this reality. That not just you would celebrate what God has done in your life, but that the people around you would see the glory of God at work in you. It becomes this testimony now. It becomes this witness of what the gospel of Jesus Christ can do. It becomes this place of celebration in the kingdom of God. And so, despite everything we're going through, you have to keep this perspective 
that what you are going through here and now with all your grief and hardships and trials, and if we were all to talk about it, it would probably be overwhelming for us with everything going on. But if we keep the perspective that, you know what, there's a future hope that God has for us that's in the power of God to make all things right. All the darkness and hardship I'm going through, one day it will be made right. And now I have a responsibility in the here and now because of the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be a witness of proving my faith genuine and showing to the world the beauty of the power of God to transform, becoming the fullness of human that I was created to be and to bring glory to God in light of that. That's our calling. That's the vision that Peter sets before us. What a beautiful vision. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray to that extent. Oh, gracious God, we come before you. And Lord, we come in humility, realizing that we who were dead in our sin could do nothing in our own power. But you have called us in your mercy to be born again into a living hope. Lord, a hope that has no threat to it. Lord, no one else in the world can have a hope that doesn't have some vulnerability or threat. When we hope in anything other than you, Lord, it's vulnerable. It can fall apart at any second. And yet the hope that we have in you is secure. It's for certain. It's something we can hold on to whatever trauma or hardship we go through in this life. And so, gracious Father, we pray that you would just instill in us a sense of, of what you are calling us to in the midst of grief and trials and testing, that we would be able to prove the genuineness of our faith and prove the power of our God in the midst of hardship and difficulty and that you would be transforming us into the fullness of humans that we were created to be so that your name would be glorified among us. And that we, at the end of the day, at the end of this period of time as we head into the new heavens and the new earth, we would be able to look back and say, God's power was great in my life. Thank you, God, that you did not leave me to my own devices, but you transformed me, you molded me, you tested me by fire so that I could be the person that you call me to be. Lord, may that be our prayer as we leave from here. May we leave here with a new sense of vision for our lives and for us as your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.